Welcome to episode 20 of the Progression Health Podcast. I'm here with Kieran Fairman. Kieran, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm, a, I'm an assistant professor of exercise science at the University of South Carolina. Um, my main, I'm the director of a research lab that's focused on exercise oncology. And that means that we do research in terms of exercise nutrition for people who are um, just about to receive, going through or coming out the other end of their cancer treatments. So we kind of look at the whole spectrum and try to see how we can help people going through um, and recovering from treatments. Brilliant. Yeah, that's like very important work. So how did you get into that field of work? What led you to start doing that work? Um, uh, the, long, the long story short is that I, I was trained and did a lot of education in sports science and strength and conditioning, so much so that I wanted to be a strength and conditioning coach. Um, was dipping in and out of um, professional work in that space. And to be honest with you, like there's a couple of reasons. One, one was I, didn't, I wasn't good enough to make a big enough impact in the strength and conditioning field. There's a lot of fantastic coaches out there. And as I was coming up, I was kind of looking at the impact I was having and going, I could work at it and I could make it a decent career, but I don't know if I'm going to have the impact. And this was paralleled with um, my own mom got breast cancer during my college career. And I was listening to kind of all the stuff that she was going through um, as a consequence of the treatments and the side effects she was having. And if you kind of list all those side effects that people have, a lot of them mirror the positive effects of exercise so it's a no-brainer to match the two of them together in terms of if you're gaining fat if you're losing muscle if you're getting weaker well we need an snc program so it was a really no-brainer to put them together and the other really important part of that was also in terms of my impact and in what i enjoy doing in terms of designing snc programs and and doing resistance training things like that I was looking at this clinical population that is typically looked after. Um, well, they're typically not well looked after. There's not really good, good programs that have been developed. And the, the programming for those type of people is really underdeveloped. So there's a huge opportunity to take someone with my background and experience and chuck it into that field. And if you could bring well-designed programs that, that are targeting the right outcomes, you can have a massive impact. And then when I started working with people, she's like the, the fulfillment you get, you know, working with professional athletes is unbelievable. You're going from like here to here and those seconds, millimeters, whatever it is count. But getting someone who's 85 years of age, never active before, going through treatment and is told they're going to be inactive and debilitated forever, back active, getting them out of chairs, getting them out of their walking canes and all that stuff. It's, it's unbelievable. So it was a combination of kind of Person experience and, and passion for the field and also the, the strong rationale to match them together. Brilliant. That answers my next question. What motivates you to pursue it? So I think the, the typical thought would be that you can't exercise if you're in treatment for cancer. But um, could you talk a little bit about that, how it's different? Or um, can, can everyone, you know, going through cancer treatment, engage in resistance training and... Um, Maybe what are some of the things that they have to keep in mind when becoming more active if they can? Yeah, I think that's definitely still the perception that people are going through treatment and they can't uh, exercise. And there's a lot of concerns, some that are fair about safety. Um, but you, you kind of back up and look at it from this perspective. You're having toxic chemotherapy flushed throughout your body days or weeks on end. 
doing a few squats isn't the thing you need to be worried about as terms of safety. Um, now, having said that, there's certainly things in terms of comorbidities or treatment side effects that we need to be mindful of to make sure the exercise is safe as possible. And I wouldn't go as far as to say everyone with cancer should exercise. But in general, the people who tend to feel the worst see the most benefits. Uh, fatigue is a really common barrier or tiredness. Those people who are most tired from treatment tend to stand the most benefit from exercise. But all I'll say is that there, there's so much similarities in terms of how we program exercise for people in terms of with cancer, in terms of the decisions we make. So the first one is, what is the person? Like, do they have training experience? Have they worked out before? What have they done before? Do they have any injuries? What is their kind of psychological state? Do they have, you know, any negative associations with exercise? What is their accessibility to equipment? All this stuff. So nothing there is groundbreaking. The only differences we do have is we then have this whole cancer considerations to think about in terms of what type of treatment, what type of cancer do you have and what stage of cancer do you have? And those two things are really important because the type and the stage of cancer you have will dictate what type of treatment you have. So for example, early stage breast cancer, um, mid-30s, former collegiate athlete, will maybe only get surgery to remove um, the tumor cells or whatever, or the cancer cells. Compare that to um, advanced head and neck cancer, who will receive surgery to maybe the throat or the neck or the jaw, um, chemo once a week, radiation five days a week, all together. So when you say, should everyone with cancer exercise, those two scenarios look profoundly different. So early stage breast cancer, getting surgery, all that is is removing tissue. So as soon as that tissue heals, you can do whatever you want. Whereas head and neck cancer, having um, the, the surgery to remove some of your jaw or your tongue or whatever, you're going to have a lot of challenges eating, swallowing, getting enough calories to maintain body weight. So we can see a really aggressive weight loss in that patient population. And then you're also trying to be strategic about managing the stress of an exercise session with the stress of treatment and fueling an exercise session enough to perform well and also recover from that exercise session. So to even think about it, like from a broader perspective, you have a person who has just got surgery and then two weeks later, they're going into the hospital every day for radiation and then their chemotherapy, they're sitting in, in the hospital one day a week for four or five hours receiving chemo. When do they exercise? How often do they exercise? How often or how much should they do? If they did a workout that you and I could do, that might push them over the edge in terms of not being able to recover from that session. So what is the balance between what's the least they can do that's going to be effective to target a certain outcome, whether that's muscle mass or physical function, versus um, just throwing the kitchen sink and, and doing as much as they can? Yeah, so... I'll, I'll backtrack a little bit and just say that um, there's a lot of like detail and kind of unknowns about cancer. And like, would you be able to go into that a little bit? And then we can kind of come back to, you know, the actual resistance training. So would you be able to go on about defining cancer, what has happened in the body, you know, the different cancers you mentioned? Yeah, yeah. A lot to it. Yeah, absolutely. So cancer is just a term for literally hundreds or if not thousands of, of 
diseases or variations of disease that is a result of rapidly dividing cells. So for some reason or whatever, some can, most are genetics, some can be lifestyle factors, family history or whatever, something in your body decides to go, we're going to start growing here. And these rapidly dividing cells, in a lot of cases, can turn into the solid tumor. And then eventually that tumor says, we need to get out of here, we need to grow, and that tumor can spread throughout the body. And that's, it. that's in the case for a lot of solid tumors. So those type of tumors, the staging of cancer refers to kind of how, how much it's spread or how, how much it's grown. So stage zero or stage one is a few cells, they're rapidly dividing, we found a lump, but we can chop it all out and get, get most of it out or all of it out to where we know that we won't need to add any additional treatments. Then as you start to progress, the way a lot of cancers spread, and particularly solid tumors, is through the lymphatic system. So the lymphatic system is set up almost identical to your, your blood system, your, your blood vessels spread throughout the body. If cancerous cells hit the lymph nodes in your lymphatic system, they'll spread throughout the body. And because they're floating around the body, they can attach to other organs and tissues and all the rest of it. So that's usually where you get to, you've hit stage one, um, you know, little lump, stage two getting a little bigger, might have some spread, but hasn't got to the lymph nodes yet. Stage three, it's got the lymph nodes starting to spread. And that's kind of when the alarm bells start to ring where you're like, we need to take care of this because it's getting more advanced, it's starting to spread. And if it starts to hit other tissues, it's just so much harder to control. So stage three refers to it, it spreads to other areas. And then stage four generally refers to metastatic. Metastatic cancer means that that cancer has then latched onto another organ or tissue and it's starting to grow on another site. So it's a metastatic disease. It, it's gone to other sites to start to grow. So the reason I say all that is kind of back to what I was saying before, where the stage of cancer will dictate and also how aggressive it is will dictate how much treatment you need so early stage just a lump all we'll do is take surgery to get it out um and you'll that tissue will recover and for the most part should be okay whereas stage four metastatic disease and it's it's all over your body it's in other um, organs it's in your bones it's all over the place well we need a really aggressive treatment to try and stop those cells from rapidly dividing and try and treat cancer that's spread throughout the body so that often means introducing chemotherapy and a lot of people when they think of chemotherapy just think of like someone sitting in a chair and they're getting some drugs pumped into them there is a boatload of different types of chemotherapy agents that all have different um, mechanisms and targets meaning the chemo you receive for breast cancer is different than the chemo you'd receive for colon cancer or or prostate cancer and the chemo you might receive or the regimen you might receive for an early stage cancer is completely different, not completely, but it's different than when you would receive for an advanced cancer. So as I'm talking, you're starting to go, that is a lot of things that you have to figure out in terms of like, well, what chemo are they receiving? And then you can throw in things like radiation therapy, where again, the idea is to try and slow and control the tumor growth, where thankfully radiation therapy is being really, the, the medicine is advancing really well to, to where it's becoming a lot more targeted. For example, if you had breast cancer years ago, you would have to get, stand all, almost up against like what you would expect of an x-ray machine and get radiation to the whole chest just to target, say, 
you know, a part of the breast tissue. And you can understand getting radiation to that area five times a week for weeks on end is going to cause some damage, particularly to the heart. Whereas now you can get people down to a couple of millimeters in terms of kind of a laser pointed approach where you can get really targeted. So thankfully the laser treatment is improving, but there's still a lot of side effects in terms of fatigue and skin rashes and things like that. And then you've got other treatments where hormone therapy, so breast cancer and prostate cancer, certain types of those cancers can be really driven by hormone concentrations. So for example, prostate cancer um, is driven predominantly by testosterone and the treatment is to either block the action of or block the production of testosterone. So basically you have too much testosterone fuel in this, this tumor, it's grown out of control. We need to get testosterone out of the body. So men with, a, with prostate cancer will receive hormone therapy, usually called androgen deprivation therapy, to stop the growth of their tumor. But by taking testosterone out of a man's body, you inherently then have changes in terms of reduced muscle mass, reduced bone strength and, and uh, structure, reduced uh, cardiovascular function, reduced physical function, overall health. So that brings a lot of challenges. So then the big picture look at it is you have all these different types of treatments that all have unique side effects and some of them can be different side effects. So based on the stage of cancer you have, the type of treatments you're receiving, we now need to figure out in that jigsaw which type of exercise is best suited for someone. So I'll go back to chemotherapy to, to give you an example. Not all chemotherapy is the same. Doxorubicin is a really common chemotherapy given to breast cancer. And if you receive high doses of dox for long periods of time, it can damage the structure and function of the heart. Now, it doesn't happen to everyone, but certainly getting that, that regimen can increase the risk of heart damage. Whereas, like I said, with, with prostate cancer and hormonal therapy, the, the big change is changes in, in the composition of your body in terms of muscle mass and, and fat mass. So if you look at them side by side, you would probably say that with cardiovascular damage being a heightened risk factor in breast cancer, maybe they need some more cardiovascular exercise. Whereas with the reductions in muscle mass and strength for prostate cancer, maybe they need more resistance exercise program first. And then you try and piece all the puzzles together around if you know anyone who knows anyone who's going through chemo, for example, you know that nausea is a big factor, lack of appetite is a big factor, sleep is a big factor. So all of those symptoms fluctuate on any given day. So then you're trying to piece in the, the idea of, you know, we've all had days where we're not motivated to exercise and all the rest of it. Imagine those days you're not motivated to exercise and you also are receiving chemotherapy. <laughs> nightmare, nightmare. So I think... That also indirectly answers your question before of, of what draws me to the field. I think that that challenge is what's so exciting about it and trying to figure out that puzzle and, and make sure that looks right for, for every one of our participants. Yeah, so there's so many different types of cancers and procedures and treatments that uh, once you know a little bit more, then you can prescribe uh, an individualized exercise program from there. So what are some statistics around cancer? Like uh, how many people will get cancer in their lifetime? Um, maybe even like the benefits of resistance training and like what could people expect to 
notice if they became more active cardiovascularly or with resistance training um, once they, they get that like diagnosis? Yeah. Um, to be honest with you, I've been teaching this for almost a decade and I've, I've, I haven't used statistics to teach the prevalence of cancer in so long because one, statistics bore the life out of people, but two, the way I do it is if I'm in a class of 100 or 200 people and I say, raise your hand if you have an immediate family member who has cancer, a few hands go up. Raise your hand if you know someone who knows someone who has cancer, a few more hands go up. Raise, raise someone if you know someone in your community that has cancer, everyone's hands go up. So that alone tells you a diagnosis of cancer is one of the most common diseases or, or you know, things that happen to people. Now, inherently, breast cancer, because we have so much aware of it and it's so common, is the most common in females, whereas, say, prostate, colon, and lung are probably among the most common in males, and they tend to get the most attention. But there's a boatload of other rare diseases that we need more research on. But to, to your point, we then... I mean, I look specifically at resistance training, but a lot of people are looking at the, the combination of resistance and aerobic training. Um, the benefits are that it's almost like if you have an ACL tear and we know you're about to receive surgery, we know that strengthening the structure of that knee and the muscles around the joint will help you recover from that surgery quicker. And you're looking at athletes now who get ACLs and are back in a year compared to as early as 15 years ago, ACL was a career ending injury. So the same thing exists for cancer. We know how, how profound the changes can be from a negative perspective from cancer treatments. We know it can wreck um, muscle mass. It can accumulate fat mass. You can lose uh, weakness in your muscles, get tired, all that good stuff. If you don't do anything to, to try and stop that, that spirals out of control. And there's actually a, a, a term in, in the cancer world called accelerated aging, whereby you can experience changes in your body within months of treatment that would be the equivalent of a decade of natural aging. So you could have redu reductions in your cardiovascular fitness, you could have reductions in your metabolic health, your muscular health, to the point of a 50-year-old could have the health of a 60, 65-year-old. So that alone tells you how important it is to try and stop some of those changes, to try and maintain your fitness, which is also, funny enough, one of the hardest things to do because if you think about, again, some of the scenarios I've mentioned, like if you've ever trained yourself for a bit of time and you haven't seen the changes you want to see, it can be pretty frustrating. But actually, if you're going through cancer treatment, and from day one, you start working with us and you go through six months of training and that end point, you're in a similar place to where you were when you started. That's a huge benefit because we know what would have happened otherwise. But that could be really difficult to maintain motivation going, I'm coming in here two or three times a week. I'm, I'm you know, lifting weights and doing all this stuff and I'm not seeing any positive changes. Well, for us, the positive changes is that you didn't have all the injuries that you would have had. It's almost like the sports science stuff. Like you can't really, if an athlete goes through a season without injury, are they going to appreciate you versus like, well, you could have had injuries otherwise. If we could prevent those changes, that's money. And that helps then set you up for when you get out of treatment, hopefully 
um, and you start to build your fitness back up and reduce the risk of recurrence down the line. But as far as specific benefits of, of each type of exercise, whether it's cardio or, or resistance exercise, again, it's all dependent on, on ultimately what we're trying to do is manage the side effects. So when we get someone who comes into the lab, we say, what type of cancer do you have? What stage do you have? What treatments are you receiving? Okay, do you have anything else? Oh, you've got diabetes and you've got COPD. Well, now we need to take those things into account where we're trying to match the stress of the exercise to whatever they've got. So in resistance training for us, like the, the analogy I give or, or the thing that we've kind of come to, to, to be in our field is that there's been so much focus on heart health for years to the point where like there's not anyone in their parents or grandparents generation that won't have heard that message. But at a certain point, cardiovascular fitness only gets you so far. And the, the easiest example I can give you is that if you take people over the age of 50, 60 plus, and you try to measure their cardiovascular fitness, oftentimes how we do that is we put people on a treadmill and we gradually increase the, the, the grade of the treadmill, make the treadmill steeper over time and make it quicker to where we reach their fit, their max effort fitness. The challenge with that is people in that category don't have the leg strength to walk up a hill. So it's not the cardiovascular fitness that's actually the rate limiter there. It's the leg strength. And you would put the same thing in terms of independence. Why are people going into independent living? Aside from mental illness and degradation there, from a physical perspective, it's because they can't carry their washing up and down the stairs anymore. They can't get in and out of the car, up and down off the toilet, up and down stairs. Or they're carrying a basket of washing in their hand, the phone rings, they go to run and get that, a cat runs out in front of them and they fall. So a lot of these people, when they're, when, you know, think of it again, a parent's grandparents' age, how many of them had been doing resistance training or strength training? Very few, if any. The really cool thing, well, the really interesting thing, but cool for us, is that we have in our muscles two different types of muscle fibers, type one and type two. And type one are kind of the, the fibers in the context of us, the ones that get you around day to day, help you stand up and down out of a chair, walk around. Type two muscle fibers are the fast explosive fibers that allow you to run, jump, all that good stuff. And a lot of people after they retire from sports, unless they're playing sports into master's age, don't use those fibers anymore. There's very few 50-year-olds that are jumping or running or sprinting or lifting heavy weights. And if you stop using those fibers, your body starts to go, we don't need those fibers anymore. So those fibers start to become denervated. We're not accessing them anymore. And all that is to say, when the cat does run out in front of you, you don't have the necessary fibers to lift your leg up fast enough and then to step your leg out in front quick enough and then absorb your body weight and then push yourself back up into an upright position. So through all those lifestyle changes that happen with aging that are accelerated by cancer treatments, you have this physical weakness that ultimately puts you in this disabled condition where you can't move about your house anymore. And then you're stuck on assisted living. So all of that is what we try to change with resistance training. And the same thing, it, a lot of people get it confused in that when I say strength training for an older adult or someone with cancer, I'm not having them doing, you know, heavy back squats under a barbell and all the rest of it. It's, it's starting where they're at. 
It's progressively uploading over time, making sure it's safe. But the whole idea is that we have to be able to give them a stimulus that's going to give them these benefits to where they can gain back their strength and function and power and all the rest. Yeah, so you meet them where they're at. Like, and that reminds me of a client I had before. She had an injury. She was complaining about, like, I'm not making the progress I want. But then it's like, if you could minimize the, the side effects of aging, like you say, and especially if you're uh, going through treatment, if you can minimize the side effects, that's a huge win. And uh, your example of uh, the cat from falling over and not being resilient or durable um, because you didn't do resistance training. It reminds me of my own mom and she is afraid to go running because she knows if she falls, she's not exactly uh, the most durable. And it's like a little bit of resistance training goes a long, long way. So yeah. that leads me, leads me back to, to you. So with all the research you've done, what do you do differently to sort of, I don't know, to mitigate the risks of cancer, the effects of it, but do you do anything differently or specific with your own health based on what you've learned um, in your years of research? Um, I di differently, not necessarily, because I've, I've always been relatively active. And if anything, it's only solidified my gratitude for my health because you can't be around so many people who are undergoing this just brutal disease and all these treatments that are just getting battered and not feel grateful for your own health. But at the same time, I'm very, very cautious around not being evangelical about what I talk about. What I mean by that is there's a lot of people who say, um, fix your diet and exercise and it reduce cancer risk and all that stuff. Well, that's cool. But Lance Armstrong got cancer. A boatload of fit, young, active people who eat well get cancer. So we have to be really careful with our messaging and how we say, look, yeah, it can help. But if you've got a genetic mutation, going for a run isn't going to do anything for that genetic mutation that's going to increase your risk of cancer. So that's kind of a side tangent, but the point I'm getting to, there's a lot of people talking about now, if you exercise, you can survive cancer longer. And again, it's a dangerous message for this point. If we say to the world, um, exercise is the best thing you can do and it's good for everyone, everyone will benefit. We know that's not the case. So I've worked in metastatic disease where this is terminally ill patients, end of life. They're in our trials and we know they're going to pass away. And in, in those settings, your idea is not to, to delay mortality. Your, your goal is to maintain quality of life and keep them out of bed as long as possible. Um, but it doesn't matter how many squats you're doing. If you've got this aggressive disease that's kind of taken over your life, exercise isn't going to do much. And we have to be careful because the people saying that these messages, very few of them are sitting across the table from a client that has three months left to live. And their doctor's told them three months left to live. And we said, look, have you tried squatting and eating a salad? Like, what are you talking about? So I have a really hard time with that messaging in the way I teach my lab, my group is less about, um, less about the, sorry, I'm just going to call this. Um, can we pause for a second? No hassle, yeah. Sorry, bud. All good. Hello?
So sorry, man. No hassle. Um, we're actively, funny enough, we're uh, the cluster set trial with lung cancer um, that, that you're talking about. It is a nightmare trying to recruit people. So anytime that phone rings, I'm just like, it's got someone. So that was that wasn't a participant, thank God. Yeah, lung cancer sounds particularly nasty. Will that be? Yeah, it's challenging. It's really challenging because, like the 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 beauty of of what we do is that we have all these really interesting questions, and the challenges, like the theory of figuring all these things out, are a lot different than the reality and the logistics, which is why a lot of people tend to fall back on breast cancer because there's so many of them. Mm-hmm it's so easy to recruit because everyone knows about breast cancer and they tend to not have as many um, comorbidities or treatment-related side effects. Whereas lung cancer, I mean, imagine getting chemo, radiation to the chest wall, half a lung removed. It's like, it's a disaster. So um, the, the recruitment rates in terms of the percentage is, is a lot lower. Yeah, that kind of reminds me of the psychology a bit that I wanted to touch on after. Um, will we kind of pick up where you were talking about? Yeah, I'm so sorry about that, man. That's no, it's like the end of it. It's all, it's all good. Um, you were talking. Oh, I had it in my head. Now it's gone. <laughs> um, you were talking about breast cancer, and I was going to ask you about Angelina Jolie, and basically if you confirm or deny the fact that she had. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You're talking about how it's, we don't blame people if they get cancer. Basically, we don't yeah, say so it's, yeah, you, yeah. We, you don't. It wasn't a lifestyle factor. It was. More, it could be bad luck, basically. Yeah. And yeah. my, my follow up yeah. point was just more. I heard that Angelina Jolie got genetic testing done where she figured out that she had like a ninety seven percent chance of getting breast cancer, and then she actually got the surgery done. And I'm not sure what's the the surgery called again. Uh, mastectomy maybe mastectomy yeah she i think she got like both breasts removed i think i've i haven't checked that out but yeah yeah now you're you're stretching the limits of my knowledge but genetic counseling is becoming a lot more common Mm -hmm. and of all the mutations the bracket gene in breast cancer tends to be the one that that is um common uh risk factor for breast cancer so the brca gene so if people have that they do have a higher risk and a lot of people do undergo those surgeries where they go, I'd, I'd rather get rid of the breast now if I'm going to have higher risk of getting this and then going through all the treatment. I'll just get rid of this um, the breast tissue now and undergo reconstruction. So Angelina Jolie is not uncommon in that. Um, and certainly I wouldn't begrudge anyone the, the opportunity to do that. Now, whether that genetic testing can advance to the point where all these different types of cancers can be detected is a different thing. But certainly the, the research on breast cancer is really advanced. Yeah, I think she was particularly likely to get it. Something like her mother, like two other women in her family had it. And yeah, I think that was that BRCA gene she was uh, carrying. Um, yeah, I, I think the, the family history is a, is a big one, for especially breast cancer. I mean, if you, if you go up the chain like that and go mother, bre- mother aunt, grandmother, I mean, it, it would be a no-brainer. To, to just kind of make that decision now not to say it's not an easy decision but again I wouldn't begrudge her yeah that's, that's a tricky one because people can't necessarily take action on that one but in terms of things people can take action on um, it, like in their lifestyle what exactly could people do to 
reduce their risk of cancer. Bearing in mind that, as you said already, it's not people's fault if they get cancer. So yeah, yeah. Could you talk about the two of those things. Yeah, I think it's it's the. I'm sure people and the public in particular are sick of these messages in terms of just trying to be more mindful of what you're eating and be more active. Um, there's not enough data to say one type of exercise is better than the other in terms of risk of cancer, but we do know that the people who are most active have the, a lower risk. Um, likewise, for diet, I would, I would go as far as say even activity and body composition could overtake your specific diet in terms of like, I don't care whether you're a vegan, whether you're plant-based, whether you're a pescatarian, it's more so, are you staying active and are you moving your body well? And then are you maintaining a, a relatively healthy body weight? So obesity doesn't increase the risk of all cancers, but it's certainly a really powerful tool to reduce the risk of the cancers that it is a risk for if you reduce overweight and obesity. So um, I always feel like a bit of a, <laughs> like very generic with these statements in terms of like, if you maintain a healthy um, weight and if you move it's it's going to be the best shot um, but that kind of goes to the simplicity of our messaging in general of like people try to overcomplicate it and get really dogmatic in what they're doing and what they're eating and how they're moving it's like at the end of the day if you're moving enough you're doing all right the type of movement you're doing I mean you might get some distinct benefits in terms of resistance training or aerobic training but as far as risk of disease you can't really say which one is better yeah, that makes me think then if uh, you were to recommend one, let's just, you know, people can't only do one, but if they were limited and they're like, right, I want to be time efficient, I want to be effective. Mm. Should I do cardiovascular exercise or resistance training? What would you recommend of the two? I, ha I, I keep falling back on resistance training. I think um, for a lot of the reasons I said, one, because you can, you can design resistance training in a way that taxes the cardiovascular system. So the, the main benefit is improvement in strength, body composition, muscle, all that good stuff. But you can also get some really good metabolic benefits, not to mention the body composition benefits. And you can have your main structure resistance training based on strength and then do something that's lighter weight, quicker, lower rest, that gives you some health benefits that would mimic cardiovascular exercise. And one of the main reasons that we do it in our lab is that for the most part, most people know how to walk. I don't need to teach you how to walk. Now, the behavioral piece of like getting you to walk and sticking to it is different. But a lot of the, the fears that people have around resistance training is a lack of awareness. They don't know what to do. They're intimidated by these spaces. They haven't moved their body in that way. They haven't lifted weights before. So if we could give them that and show them how to move well and move right and design a training program right, it's magic. All you have to do is complement that with your walking. So that's that's why we focus on that as a, as a lab. Yeah. And then for the people who are like, no, I like my cardiovascular training and um, I'm going to stick with it. Mm -hmm. Is there any way they could sort of like get resistance training benefits from their cardiovascular work or um, what would they potentially be missing out on that you could say, just consider doing the resistance training if you ever get a chance, you know, an extra bit of time a couple of times a week? Yeah, I mean, I think the, if you're talking about people who are active as runners, the biggest thing you're missing out on is the risk of injury, injuries from running. We know that resistance training added to running routines 
is a really powerful tool to reduce the risk of runner-related injuries, hamstring strains, um, impact injuries, things like that. Um, as far as lifestyle-related things, it's all the things that I talked about in terms of, especially if you're just a steady-state runner, you're just getting steady-state benefits. So there's ways you can make that harder if you, if you spend more time sprinting or doing more high-intensity exercise. That could activate type 2 muscle fibers. That could give you some power characteristics. Um, if you added some plyometrics in terms of like bounding and jumping and hopping and skipping, that can, again, help you maintain some power as you age. But certainly the resistance training aspect is going to be um, improving overall strength, which then can contribute to your running performance and improving activities, daily living, and all the rest of it. So, yeah, running, the old kind of myth that uh, you need to stick to running if you're a runner and weights will slow you down. You're basically saying that's kind of like that's gone. You're actually, uh, you have a lower risk of injury as a runner by doing some weight training. Yeah, and you think about why why that why that message persisted for so long was the perception that re resistance training was one going to make you gain a bunch of weight and be real slow. Well, we know that's not the case because I've rarely seen aerobic trained athletes who are predominantly runners train and get bigger. I've been training for years and I still can't get bigger. Um, so that's not going to happen. But then the other strategy that a lot of cardiovascular athletes do is that they try to drop their body weight. Because if they're running at a lower body weight, their power increases. So your power to rate ratio. Well, there's not a really easy way to do that without dropping body weight. We can maintain your body weight and then just increase your strength of power with resistance training. So instead of having to drop to 135 pounds to be fast, why not stay at 140, 150, 160, and we can just increase your engine. So I think that's, that's kind of dispelling the myth in some ways. And to, to the other point, that amount of repetition um, without any support in terms of correcting um, mobility and movement or even strength training in general, it's going to be a lot on the body. So if we can strengthen the overall musculature, um, even you think about beyond the lower body, how much upper body exercise are endurance athletes getting? Very minimal. And if you're just left leaving half your body unaddressed, it's going to lead to some challenges in terms of imbalance and things like that. Yeah, you're leaving yourself weak. So typically, what kind of resistance training do you do with participants? And um, like, what would you start them off on? I know things like TRX is becoming more popular for home workouts. So I don't know, would you ever do anything like that? Or is it, you know, dumbbell? Yeah, we're, we're actually using um, TRX in one of our protocols right now. Um, I will say in general, we follow a rubric that's not too uncommon, where we just look to see if people can squat hinge, push, pull, carry. Um, so these general movements that we know anyone from elite athletes to aging folks need to perform well. So in terms of squatting for an athlete, you need to push someone out of the way. You need to jump well, all that stuff. In terms of squatting for someone who's aging, it's getting up and down out of the chair and the toilet and all the rest of it. Same with hinging and all those other characteristics. And the reason we do that is because a lot of traditional clinical trials We'll just do machine-based exercises, stuff people in a machine, and then get them their 12-week program and then see some benefits and all the rest of it. The challenge is I can stuff someone in a leg press machine for 12 weeks and see some improvements in strength, but that necessarily hasn't improved anything about how they move, how they feel, how confident they are if they leave our study and go to a different facility with a different leg press 
machine that they've never used before. So if we have a rubric of movements that we want to accomplish, then we can have these progressions and regressions selected in. So at any given time, if you walk into a clinic or a lab, you might see someone, if we have squat as the movement of the day or the movement of the, the specific time, you might someone see someone doing a T-Rex assisted chair stand because they're so weak, they can't get out of a chair without it. You might see someone else doing a bodyweight squat. You might see someone else doing a barbell squat. So having that rubric allows us to meet people very specifically where they're at. And it gives us a really clear progression rule to help people get to this point where we're loading them properly. And really importantly in air structure, we try to wean away supervision and instill autonomy in our, in our participants and our clients in that we're asking them why we're doing these exercises. We're asking them things like if you go to your local YMCA and you don't have um, dumbbells, you don't have kettlebells, what else can you do or whatever? And it's starting to ping them in terms of like when they leave us, we want them to stay gone. <laughs> you know what I mean? We want them to, to not need us anymore. Um, so that's kind of the overarching uh, the structure. But to, to your earlier point, there are some things that we have to modify with the resistance exercise um, to accommodate some symptoms. So we're just talking about a trial I've got going on right now where we're looking at specifically managing resistance training to target shortness of breath and lung cancer. So there's um, a type of resistance training called cluster sets uh, that came from Olympic lifting. Um, Greg Hoff was one of the kind of leaders in this space for years. But the whole principle is if you're doing a clean or a snatch and this really explosive movement where you're lifting a weight over your head, that can get really fatiguing really quickly. And that fatigue can impact your ability to do the exercise again or experience power. So what typically is prescribed is you do a sets of three or sets of five or sets of six or whatever. And if you do a snatch six reps in a row, that's really tiring. It's really difficult to maintain the quality. So all cluster sets refer to is breaking up that big set of six or whatever many reps you have into very smaller, more manageable sets. So instead of one set of six, you might do one set of two, take 20, 30 seconds break, go back for another set of two, take another 20 second break, take another set of two, so on. So the, that body of research started to accumulate and going, well, if we can use those little mini breaks in the cluster sets to catch your breath, you can uh, kind of stave off fatigue, maintain the quality, maintain the performance and get better benefits. So. I had a really great conversation with Carol, Carol, Carolyn Pedal McIntyre, a good friend of mine in Australia who works in lung cancer. And she was saying a lot of the rate limiting factors of exercise capacity in lung cancer is not that their muscles aren't strong enough, is that they're so out of breath. So if you think about a traditional set of three sets of 10 repetitions, well, if I set someone off who's 87 years of age, who has lung cancer on a set of 10 repetitions, they're knackered by the fourth or fifth rep. So they can't actually get to 10. And the way we help them get to 10 is that we reduce the weight. The problem is, if we reduce that weight so low that they can get to 10, they're not actually having any sort of resistance to do it. So they might be able to get 10, but they're not getting benefit from that, from that 10. Super long story to say that the whole reason we're thinking about this is that the same principle exists. 
fatigue, shortness of breath is limiting their ability to perform that full set of repetitions. So if we broke up that full set of 10 into five mini sets and do two repetitions, stand up, catch a breath, do another two repetitions, stand up, catch a breath, do another two repetitions, so on and so forth. Those little breaks can help you catch your breath, you know, kind of get your get yourself back in order and attack the, the other two, which we hope can one help them handle a higher load, which will eventually lead to better adaptation or better improvements. And two, potentially the psychological effect is that they can trust themselves. Oh, I can do this. I couldn't do the sets of 10 before, but now I can with this little mini break. So giving them more confidence that will hopefully then lead to better adherence down the line in terms of their activity. So a participant in one of your studies, they're not given a plan and told do this. They have, there's kind of some choice or there's a little bit of like uh, adaption to their level. Is that how it works? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I haven't done a fully structured plan in years in terms of like, here's the 12 week program. We're going to stick to this because the traditional rules of progression don't apply in this population. There's no way we can predict when someone's ready to move up or ready, ready not to move up. And also, because of the side effects of cancer treatment, you could have this beautiful plan laid out, four, six-week plan. They're going to see these great progressions. And they come in three days in a row, absolutely wrecked. They've, they haven't slept. They've been nauseous all morning. They haven't eaten two days. So who are we to say, well, the piece of paper said you have to go up today. <laughs> You know what I mean? So we try to also manage all those symptoms and side effects within the context of the program. So we have a general framework at which we kind of use. And then there's a lot of flexibility within that that we can um, tailor to the individual. Sounds pretty similar to what I do with clients where I have a rough structure of like what they did before and what their goals are. But on the day, you know, they could do more or less depending on like how they're feeling. So I kind of meet them at their level. But uh, you're speaking a bit about like, Kind of collaboration with the participant and like letting them choose you know what they do so it's kind of like the psych psychology is pretty important so like what's the psychology of, of, of a patient or a participant in terms of like do they believe that they can get a benefit from exercise like how does it differ from someone who's in the general population and like i guess how important is psychology overall in the whole process of working out and you know treatment massive massive i think you said it at the very start where um it was something along the lines of like, uh, well, they're, they're being told they have to rest, you know, from everyone, from doctors, from Mary on Facebook, from the person down the road, you've got cancer, you need to rest. On top of, if you've never done resistance training before, it's inherently intimidating. So why would they feel confident about their ability to do it? They've never done it before. And they're having all these people in our life telling them they, they need to go home and rest. So, it's funny because I was trained in a behavioral lab at Ohio State where we worked a lot where our programs were cent centered around self-efficacy and the affective response to exercise, where the initial loading was determined by basically how, how challenging the stimulus would be to them. So if you have someone unaccustomed to exercise, you don't want to put them through the ringer, give them a bunch of muscle damage, a bunch of muscle soreness, and then they're going, that, well, that was a nightmare. I'm never going back to that. Where can we gradually introduce um, volume and intensity over time and gradually change the stimulus to where it's a little bit more challenging? And it's that balance between it's challenging enough to give you a challenge, but not too much to where you don't think you can do it. 
so that's what we try to do in our programs. But irrespective of that, there's a massive difference in people's self-confidence, self-efficacy confidence, their perceived ability to do the work before they do our session versus eight, 10, 12 weeks after when they actually do it. Because it's, it's really daunting. Why would you think that you can go from, um, you know, not being able to hinge at the hips to being able to deadlift 150 pounds? And we've seen those changes. So that's probably one of the, the most exciting changes we see is in the mindset of individuals having never done this before to then becoming adopters where they get their own gym membership and head off out to the world. But as far as the, the psychology, it's, it's so fascinating because we're such a small part of their, their bigger life. So a lot of their point, I mean, even put this in the context of like, imagine a family member gets diagnosed with cancer and they're a third shift worker and they've got two kids. Okay, when do I take off time to go for treatment? Should I tell my boss, am I going to be able to keep my job? If I keep my job, will it be there when I get back? Who do I tell? I don't know anything about cancer. Am I going to survive this? Do I tell my partner? Do I tell my kids? It's a mess. So on top of that, all of their appointments for the next period of months, if not years, is updates on how the disease is progressing. Can you imagine how, how much anxiety that would give you in terms of every time you're going back to the, to the a doctor, it's like your tumor is either growing, it's staying the same, or it's not growing. And those options are in your mind every appointment. So a lot of the times, everything else in their life can be all over the place. And we can serve as one of the only points to really center them and give them um, something positive to, to look after and challenge them and all that stuff. So the way we work with our teams is that it, it's a patient-focused and experience-based program first. Because again, these aren't bodybuilders. They're anywhere from 60 to 90 years of age, even younger than that, but up to 90 years of age, just looking to improve their health and move better. So we don't need to have this overly complicated, sophisticated, periodized, individualized back to foot. We just need to help them move better and teach them how to progress the, the movements on their own. Now, the purist from a physiological perspective might say, well, that's not enough to get the, the best outcome or the best, um, yeah, the best improvements in strength or whatever. And I would go back to any single one of them and go, it's not just physiology. You cannot separate physiology from psychology with these programs. So when you say best, what is your outcome at which you mean by best? There might be a program that yields the most improvements in strength, but that might not be the best program that leads to adherence and long-term maintenance behavior. So when we talk about best, you have to be really clear. And that's what we try to do in our program is find that balance between a stimulus is challenged enough to see improvements in your physical function, but it's also a, a pleasurable and enjoyable enough experience that you're going to want to keep doing it. Yeah, the uh, consistency and adherence is the number one, really. So just out of curiosity, what are some of like the non sort of physique, physical benefits you've noticed in participants um, that, you know, that kind of stick with you or that have been the most profound for you? The, the physical function test. So I, I'm funny, like my journey has kind of gone all over the place. And at one point I was desperately um, into like cell signaling, like at the, at the biological level of the muscle, what is this pathway doing? And that stuff is really interesting. But 
at the same time, irrespective of what's going on in that like intercellular level, you still have to come back out and see what outcomes are actually happening. And this, some of our assessments can be fairly simplistic. So we can do a timed up and go. All that is, is you sit down in the chair and we time it, the time, we t- time the time it takes you to stand up out of that chair, walk 10 feet, come back down around, sit down. So again, grandparents and older, that's a really powerful predictor of your ability to perform activities daily living. Or we can measure how long it takes you to do five chair stands up and down or measure your gait speed. And as even though they're relatively simplistic measures, seeing those changes is some of the most rewarding, profound work that we do because it even comes down to the psychology. You have people coming into our program who cannot stand up and down out of a chair once. So that's, that's a really dangerous place to be as an older adult, particularly if you're living on your own. And then over the course of six to eight to 12 plus weeks, we get to, to a point where they can do a five, six plus times. It's magic. And then you have another people lose, lose um, assisted walking devices and lose walking canes or their gait speed improves. So it, it's exciting, man. Like it's, it's probably one of the best things about what we do is we're getting to the end of the program and seeing those changes in such simple measures, but so impactful to the people that they're, they're, um, that are doing them. Yeah, absolutely. So actually, I know a member in my family got a, a knee replacement and she's older, she's in her 80s and she didn't move a whole lot after the injury uh, or the, the surgery and she actually got a blood clot. So it's like that simple sit to stand, you know, I know it's, it's different to cancer, but it's kind of like just a simple bit of movement is essential uh, when you're going through treatment and uh, it really keeps you young. So would it be fair to say that some people who you work with they kind of they don't get younger but like they kind of add years to their life or they their lives or they add quality to the years they have left by becoming more physically fit i would say all the above i would say all the above like the the nice thing about what we do is that we um we do our quantitative measures so we we get how much did you change in terms of timed up and go and sit and stand but we also regularly do focus groups and qualitative pieces and that's where the magic comes out man where it's like I can now run and play um, soccer with my daughter. I can do go back to garden and I haven't gardened in four years or whatever. So it's not just the changes in the physical fitness. It's what that change of physical fitness allows them to do with their life. So that's probably the most powerful part of it is seeing these people do stuff that they haven't done in years or wanted to do or have aspirations of going back on like hikes and climbs and all this stuff. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, they get their life back home by the sounds of it. Yeah. So uh, I'm not sure what to call it. Maybe an organization or a bit of work you do is uh, uh, barbells for boobs. Is that what it's called? Would you talk? Yeah, yeah. A little bit about that. Yeah. So uh, a good friend now at this stage, Diana, um, started this this company because she had a friend who was fairly early, um, for, sorry, fairly young when she got diagnosed with breast cancer, and I want to say it's, it was under forty, um, and eventually she passed away. But the, the biggest frustration was that um, screening for breast cancer is not covered by insurance in the States under the age of 40. So her friend had this um, idea that, like, I've got a lump, I need to get it tested, couldn't get it covered, so on and so forth. So that started Joanna's passion to, to get funding and support for people who are going through breast cancer or help support mammograms and all the rest of it. 
And that has transformed a lot of different ways over the last few years, but ultimately they've landed on where they can have the most impact is helping people who are about to or going through treatment with breast cancer move in ways that are going to help them. And that tends to be with resistance training. So the really cool thing about them is that Z works her backside off and she's got such a good network here in the States and she's partnered with um, various medical centers. She's put several of us on her medical advisory board to make sure that the program is high quality and has partnered with Puma in the US to build out this whole program and awareness. And it's just amazing to see because we do a lot of research on university settings and they tend to be really good for that local community, but we don't necessarily especially in a, a place the size of the States, have the resources to have that big of an impact. So being involved with that program with C is just being able to see all of our passions come to fruition where she's helping people all over the country, if not the world, move better. So where their program is right now is that they offer programs in terms of um, movement, nutrition, and psychology for people with breast cancer going through treatment. And they go through this whole program. They've got dedicated coaches. They help them out um, and see if they can see improvements in all the outcomes that we've talked about in addition to treatment response and stuff like that. So it's just a really cool program that I just feel fortunate to be a part of. Yeah, I can imagine there's a lot of meaning in that work and a lot of, uh, a lot of good you're doing, a lot of big impact as well. So that's great. Um, you, you have your own podcast. You have a lot more research you're doing that we didn't touch on. Is there anything that we didn't go over that you want to mention? let people know about um i would i mean you covered a lot man it was it was a great interview i the only thing i would say is yeah i've got my own podcast called reach research and exercise and cancer health um and that that has interviews from everyone from individual patients to themselves to medical oncologists to other researchers about what it's like to go through cancer and and how exercise nutrition can help um, and then I would just say I'm open to, to any conversation on this stuff. So I'm fairly active on Twitter. Um, our handle is Kieran Fairman. And then my email is kieranfairman at gmail.com. I'm more than happy to chat to people about their, if they're interested in this space or looking to get into it or any other resources I can offer. Brilliant. Yeah, I'll, I'll attach that in the show notes. And a particular interest will be the actual patients and participants themselves to hear, you know, their side of, of the story because I, I haven't heard of it, you know, um, so it'll be very interesting insight. Yeah. Brilliant. All right, Karen, thanks very much.